Have you ever wondered what it feels like to have a story burning inside of you? Be driven by a head-banging compulsion to make every word, sentence, and paragraph authentic? Or experience the magic that happens when the imaginary people in your head become real to other people? I have. I'm Maddie Margarita, and this is Character Floss, a conversational deep dive into the psyche of compelling characters and the authors who create them. Our guest today is August Norman, author of Come and Get Me, his debut thriller, Originally from central Indiana, August has called LA home for two decades, which sounds a whole lot longer than a year than one. Writing for and or appearing in movies, television, stage productions, web series, and even commercial advertising. A lover and champion of crime fiction, he's an active member of the Mystery Writers of America, the International Thriller Writers, and Sisters in Crime, and regularly attends the Santa Barbara Writers Conference. Today, he's caught off his keynote speech at the Southern California Writers Conference in Irvine, California, which we both attended this weekend. Welcome to Character Floss, Norm. Well, thanks for having me, Maddie. It's a pleasure to talk to you again. Are you fully recovered after a weekend, heady literary celebrity? Yeah, that's, that is the way to put it. I, <laughs> so important. I, if anything, energized. I think I came back, as I do from any conference, kind of hit the ground running. A little overwhelmed, but then I hit the ground running and really dove into some stuff getting back. What about you? Yes, I I am. I had a whole weekend and a whole day of lit up. So it's been a literary long weekend. <laughs> but so I know everybody at the conference appreciated the message in your keynote speech where you shared your journey to publishing. Looking back, are there any things that you wish that someone had told you while you were writing Come and Get Me? As far as being aware of the industry, I mean, when I write, I think the most important thing is to, um, you know, uh, I don't even know who said it. It's probably Stephen King. When in doubt, writing probably, probably yeah. comes from Stephen King, but it's the, yeah. you, know, you write your first draft. In a, or James uh, Patterson, but go ahead. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And then the second draft, you know, when you finally show it to people, that's when people come in. So, so I try not to care about anything in the world while I'm working on a project. I'm not a reading critique. I mean, I'm a reading critique person. I'm not a... I don't have a regular group that I submit that works in progress to. I have a lot of friends who do and nothing against that process. But for me, I sort of write in that vacuum until I'm ready to reread it and show it to someone. So as far as if there was anything I wish I'd known, I mean, the whole industry, uh, a, a, my dream has come true. Let me just say that. I have published a book. I have another book on the way and my dream has come true. So. I have no regrets. That said, I also got to this stage very much with the idea of like, there's a learning curve with any new industry where you finally get into something. You're going to break some eggs to make your omelet or pancakes or scramble or whatever you're using. Great metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. yeah cookies. Yeah, <laughs> so you're going to need to break some eggs to make chocolate chip cookies. I've learned as I've gone along. I've caught up on some stuff, certainly as I go. But you just, you have to roll with the punches a little bit and like have everything in life. I, I try to liken it to, you know, the, the when you get married, all of a sudden you're like, oh, wait, there's a whole industry around this concept. And not only do I need to play in this industry and not waste a bunch of money, but I also, I need part of that dream is happening at the same time. So you have to be able to distance yourself emotionally from what you need to do economically. All right. Which... I guess don't take it personally is good advice for any writer. <laughs> so you obviously have mastered the entire craft of writing. 
because <laughs> New York Times bestselling author Simon Gervais called Come and Get Me a stunning debut. And who's going to argue with him because he's a Mountie or was a Mountie, Royal Canadian Mountie. That is correct. And I will, just because I have met the man and he's amazing, I will say it's Simone, actually. He's oh, well, thank you. Yes. Did, I, did I get the Gervais right? Yes, you did. Totally. <laughs> well, thank you, Ricky. Okay. Yes. And at New York Times USA Today bestselling author, Estina Holmes. How about that? Did I get that right? Perfect. Yeah. Describes it as tight, enticing, and seductive with its taunts and twists. Wow. So <laughs> that's all pretty great stuff. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Come and Get Me? All right. Well, Come and Get Me is a, a modern crime thriller set in current times, hence the modern part, good job, Marty. Uh, mm -hmm. Which is a, I guess you would call it a crime thriller. It follows Caitlin Bergman, female journalist from Los Angeles who grew up in LA, is an LA award-winning investigative journalist, but who hasn't been back to her college town since she left school. In fact, have, recently having had a book out, she finally takes her old best friend up on an offer to come back and get an honorary diploma. So Caitlin takes this trip back to Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. And while she's there, realizes the reason she hasn't come back is because she hasn't confronted a trauma in her past, which right away being in that spot sort of puts her back into moments of that. So as a distraction, when the town people, a young student comes to her and asks her to look into a recent disappearance of an unsolved disappearance of a missing student, she jumps at the chance to do something different. And of course, what happens is she gets deeply involved in that mystery. And then we find out that what happened to that student is now uh, liable to happen to Kate as she turns into a thriller and, um, <laughs> and deals with those consequences. So, yeah. So basically nothing good happens after that. That is fair. That is fair to say. <laughs> okay. other, than, other than she uh, reconnects with some people and she puts herself back in spots that she's avoided for a long time and hopefully grows through the process. Okay, great. Okay, so you live in LA. Yeah. So why set this story in Midwest? This At story, a reunion, no less. Aside, uh, well, a reunion because they're always fraught with drama and danger. But why the Midwest? Uh, that is very true. Well, uh, Caitlin is very much based on parts of my life and I attended Indiana University. Uh, for undergrad, uh, uh -huh. the only school I didn't. I, there's no, there's no MFA after that, so it's just undergrad. But I attended it, and I had an amazing time. I look back in the beautiful Big Ten College as idyllic uh, and wonderful. And of course, that's not the story for everyone. Uh, everyone, uh, we find these, those of us who are lucky enough to attend that sort of school, it's very easy to to get lost in a sea of that kind of thing. My school when I was there, I think, averaged around. 80,000 students at one time. And it's very easy, even though it seems a very nice small town feel, very easy for someone to disappear. And in fact, in the mid 2010s, sorry, 2012, 2014, there was a disappearance that is currently still unsolved, as well as a couple of uh, things that happened surrounding that area in the Midwest, all of which made me feel very helpless and very mad. Mm -hmm. um, which is uh, a story I wanted to, which I wanted to address in story. You know, when you can't change the world physically, trying to change it metaphorically, I suppose. So I said it there, and, I, and again, I said it there because of the city being so near and dear to so many people. I wanted to put it in a realistic location and remind myself and, and the world that 
my great experience comes at the cost often of others. Right, and the bad things happen in paradise, and which makes them all the much creepier. Thank you. Yes, and of course, as a journalist, uh, Indiana University has an amazing media program that derived from the Ernie Pyle School of Journalism. Uh, Ernie Pyle is a famous war correspondent, World War II. So basically, are they paying you for that commercial? <laughs> no, I don't think. That's I don't, a freebie. We'll see. We'll see how they how they how they, <laughs> okay. after they read the book. Uh, you know. All right. We'll see how book two does. All right. Exactly. All right. So, okay, you have this woman coming back to her reunion in the Midwest, and she's confronted with uh, this cold case, basically. So, which is always great, except if you have to write it. So, at least from my perspective, did writing about past events feel more challenging to you than if you were describing them real time? Was that for me, seems to be no, because as a, if I had to solve a crime today, I'm not, I don't have a background in policing. I have some background in journalism, but I don't currently work in that field. For me, the amateur sleuthishness of it all, of a cold case, that idea of looking at something with fresh eyes with an outsider's perspective actually appeals to me quite a bit because in general, the pacing is rather slow. It almost distances you from the crime. So I felt like for Caitlin, that would be a kind of a good pace to work at. Little did she know that it would uh, involve someone actively hunting her. But as a, as a writer, um, it is almost easier for me to sort of walk in after much longer <laughs> later than the police might have done. Right. So, so you have these clues, which, to your point, might be easier to lay out in the past. But writing that, how did you get them to come out so organically? I mean, it's one thing, you know, in a linear fashion to, to write these actions as they happen one after another. When you have the freedom to put your clues wherever you want, that actually, to me, sounds like an added degree of difficulty and not something that makes it easier. Is that um, not true or true or? No, it very much is true. And um, <laughs> I, I don't remember somewhere there's an author jumping up and down, but one of the first craft books I picked up, I always wrote, but I was never classically trained necessarily. So one of the first craft books I picked up was, I think it was called How to Write a Damn Good Mystery. And I want to say the author is Frey, F-R-E-Y, but uh, again, somewhere, somewhere is probably jumping up and down and screaming. <laughs> But anyway, if you look up how to write a damn good mystery, you'll find it. And the author very much presented the idea of the two stories overlapping, which is one is the story of the crime and the other one is the story of why this particular person is the chosen one out of everyone in the world to solve that crime. Now, granted, that applies to a traditional mystery more than, say, a thriller, but I believe they certainly overlap. So in my, in my world, first, I wanted to answer questions in my mind of what could have possibly happened in this. How is someone surrounded by 100,000 people um, able to disappear? And why is that crime still unsolved? And what would it take for that crime to still be unsolved? And so I wanted to kind of lay that down. And I do that in a process I call the crime line, which is basically a spreadsheet with uh, a series of dates and times and things that would have to happen in order for that. Now, a lot of that never makes it to the page, but it involves things like goes to hardware store and buys the horrible things that are required for crime or just, you know, for home improvement. You should uh, copyright that crime line. I like that, but go on. Uh, I'm sure I stole it from someone else. <laughs> I said it the other day and someone's like, Ooh, is that yours? And I'm like, I, I, I doubt it. But, yes. um, but I, I keep that spreadsheet of the crime line. And then I also have another one, uh, which is sort of a character Bible. 
my characters in this book, this is my debut novel, but um, these characters, several of which were created in a previous manuscript that did not sell. And by creating those, I had created a fairly large backstory with the idea that hopefully a, a series might happen. But if not, that's fine too. But I, I wanted to imbue my characters with certain characteristics and I wanted them to have certain life experiences, uh, which meant I had to back time them to historical events. Mm -hmm. um, and so using sort of those two things, it's actually pretty easy for me to, to keep them clean. And then the part of that is the joy of when I needed Caitlin to discover something, first I always had her discover something about herself and be motivated by it. So it was fun to, to go into her backstory in areas I'd never thought about, like her parents and um, her childhood, and uh, and bring out those moments. So I, I think I kind of covered what so, you Yeah, so that sounds, that sounds easy. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so we have Caitlin, and she's at the reunion, and she uncovers or comes into contact with this cold case. So obviously we know, because it's a thriller, she's going to set out to investigate you know, as you read this and you're wondering, I'm wondering, what is it about Caitlin that makes her uniquely equipped to solve this case or investigate this case that the cops have not been able to solve? What is it about her, do you think, that brings her closer to the truth? I think one of the, without giving too much away, but right. I'm not sure, and people will still buy a book if they hear us talk about it. I assure you the book is better than my ability to talk about the book. Buy the book. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> but for Caitlin, again, the reason she's been unable to return to this town is the overcoming of trauma. And by actively creating another investigation that she can bury herself in, that allows her to circumnavigate and to slowly work at her trauma for a greater cause. So on one hand, she's very driven. Um, she's driven to do this. There are also echoes of the reason she was traumatized in the past. In, in the reason she left uh, Bloomington weeks before graduation and never went back were because of the way a local police department, this is fictional, even though it's set in the town, but how she was treated by a police department at the time. And mm -hmm. therefore her return to that is she's going to look at it from a different point of view than normal policing would allow. She's also going to look at it through the veil of two years after their investigation has failed so that she has that distance of clarity of like, well, that first day people just thought it was somebody not coming home. And then the second day they just figured somebody would run away or an accident before, you know, once you get two or three days after something, you realize it might be a homicide investigation. Well, then you've already made a lot of mistakes. And, but Kaylin has both the drive and, and the knowledge. And she also has a backstory as an investigative journalist who is not adversarial with the police. Uh, in fact, uh, has relationships with FBI agents as well as her own father was an LAPD officer. So she very much has a, an extensive knowledge of policing and a respect for it. So she also knows what sort of the pitfalls might be and where politics might have stopped things. And, and she's able to recognize those moments as she goes to the point where she even kind of understands right away that it's odd that the local police force is going out of their way to help her or to have her give her access to to this disappearance. Right. Okay, so you know, you used a word that I thought was interesting after reading the book is clarity. Because Caitlin strikes me as someone who is in search of clarity but might not have a lot of clarity at this particular point in time, maybe in aspects of her life. 
you load her up with what some would consider some vices and some painful wounds. Why would you do that to her? She seems like such a nice person. Uh, she is indeed a nice person, despite her past. When I originally wrote Caitlin, I, I wanted her eight. Well, when I originally started the character of Caitlin Bergman, uh, it was a screenplay. And it was a screenplay I wrote with one a friend of mine in mind so that she would get to play an amazing part. I just wanted Caitlin to be the kind of person you wanted to hang out with, that you knew would have your back, that didn't take crap from anybody. And then, then I kind of wanted to go with that. And here's the strongest person you know who has also had to deal with some stuff and didn't nail it. You know, she didn't, she, she went through trauma and did not handle it well because who, what, who of us do, especially in, around 20 or 21, it might take another 20 years and a whole bunch of therapy to kind of finally go back and see a major event that shaped who and, and who she is and how she acts. So I, I wanted her to be flawed. I wanted her to be realistic. I worked very diligently with uh, my own therapist um, as well. She gave me a, a fair number of um, resources to consult. I wanted to make sure I was honoring people who have experienced that kind of trauma. And I wanted to make sure that, that again, it all fell into an era of believability. And it's eventually it's all subjective and what comes down to the reader of whether or not. Right. But it, but it is. I definitely get the occasional comment like, wow, she really swears a lot. And I'm like, well, most of my female friends are stand-up comics in Hollywood. So. Well, that's why she does not smoking pot. So, but you know, she does strike me as the kind of person that you want on your side, you know, and she's not. Okay. I have two questions. So I know you said you wrote it for a friend of yours. I'm not sure everybody who's listening knows, but if you had to come up with a, an actress to play her, other than this person that you had in mind when you wrote it, who would that be? That's a fair question. And I'd hate to, I, one of the magic or the magic of obviously, you know, novels and fiction is that mm -hmm. the audience gets to bring their imagination to it. So as far as possible casting, I do have a list and I'm trying to see looking on my computer right now to try to find that tab. So when Netflix or Amazon calls you yeah, for yeah. that streaming uh, contract, sure. Go be uh, ready. Yeah, exactly. And I, you know, I, right. I've got some names I've got, let me see. And, and, you know, I've got Jessica Chastain. I've got Charlize Theron, Mila Kunis, Amanda oh. Reddy, Jamie Alexander, Olivia Munn, Alicia Vikander. Oh, I like Olivia Munn. Um, yeah. Nat Natalie Portman, Rachel Weiss, or Weiss, I suppose. Mm -hmm. So, but again, it doesn't have to be any of those people. It, right. As long as the, the character lives in a powerful way. Right. And she has um, the ability to carry off a dimensional character like Caitlin. Yeah, that would be lovely. Oh, that would be good. Okay, so in thrillers, the protagonists are often loners. Do you see Caitlin as a loner? I see her as sort of, well, I guess we say what an extroverted introvert or an introverted mm -hmm. extrovert, one of the two. She's I good covers about crowd. everything there, Norm, so that's good. Yeah, well, yeah, but she's good in a crowd. She has no problem interacting with people through her job and through life. She doesn't waste a lot of time BS. That said, she does tend to rely only on herself. Having grown up with a single parent who is also a police officer, she tends to internalize a great deal and, and 
it, through this, uh, through the, through come and get me, she actually finally learns to sort of remembers that it's okay to connect with people and it's okay to count on people. And that's part of the journey and going on in the series, she will begrudgingly accept more help and deeper friendships. Okay. So, you know, um, Caitlin is good at looking for ways to relieve stress. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the men in her life. Oh, sure. <laughs> What makes, what is it about the people that she decides to have relations or relationships with? And what is it about <laughs> them that make them attractive to her? Well, Caitlin's single and she's in her um, low to mid forties uh, when we meet her in this book. And, um, but she's always been very sex positive and very, again, very live in the now. So um, she's attracted to people with confidence and she's attracted to people who are generally honest, but she's not afraid to just also use the physical side of someone when she needs it. I wouldn't call it mannish because I feel like that's not necessary. Is what maybe what we traditionally think of is how right. men sometimes use sex, but knowing enough women who think the opposite way, I, <laughs> uh, I, I think that's just a bad stereotype anyway, but yeah, she's a, she's not apologetic and she, with her life as a journalist, she really doesn't have a lot of time. She has had deep relationships. You touch on it a little bit in Come and Get Me and hopefully she will have deep relationships again. Mm -hmm. At this time, she's not currently looking for one and she's pretty happy in her condo in the Fairfax district. And she's at that age when it comes, it'll be a pleasant surprise. But in the meantime, she's gonna have some sex friends. Yeah, all right. So. What is an ideal date or what would an ideal date look like for her? Uh, that is a fair question and uh, <laughs> I'll make some notes. An ideal date uh, with Caitlin involves some sort of, I won't say junk food, but perhaps street food. It, it involves a, a fancy a taco truck somewhere uh -huh. in East Los Angeles and then perhaps a Dodger game or, or going to a food market downtown, watch a classic film on a rooftop and then a cocktail or two, any combination of those. She, she's down for dinner and a movie at a Chili's, but you know, but she, she's more into the things she would, she's not big on pretense. So, you know, mm -hmm. you could take her to an amazing restaurant, but she would get just as much enjoyment out of taking you to, you know, to find the best empanada in Los Angeles. See, again, why we like her. Okay. So, the story and her experiences um, get dark and, to quote one of your reviewers, twisty in places. But I also see what our mutual friend Lisa Brackman characterized as a sly sense of humor uh, through this. Or maybe, I'm not sure whether it's not taking herself totally seriously or exactly how that comes about. But so, how is your experience with Second City Ghostwriting? Oh, yeah. it's comedy. Yeah, so I come from a large comedy background. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the reasons uh, I've always performed comedy and I used to traditionally write comedy, a lot of my early screenplays and uh, TV specs are all sitcom uh, based stuff. So comedy's huge to me. And as I understand it, um, as I've come to understand my own use of it, I very much use comedy to keep th certain emotional journeys at a distance. And Caitlin does the same thing. She is very funny. It's part of that comes from her career. 
of seeing, I don't know, man's inhumanity toward man, just the con as well as her father of being a police officer, seeing that constant ridiculousness of the way we treat each other and sometimes the obscurity of it all, but still being able to laugh through things. She's a little bit of a Gemini, even though I'd probably date her <laughs> birthday. So it's a novel. And hey, take it easy. Take it easy on Geminis. Okay. Oh, I, well, I'm a Gemini. So I guess, Are you really? Oh, yes. Oh, I am. We're um, in trouble, North. Yeah, exactly. She's very much a devil's advocate for all moments in her life. So she can right. see the dark points for what they are, but she's also able to take the long view and see how right. ridiculous that is when compared to the horrors of the world. So comedy <laughs> is a big thing for her. She's going to use it to get to know people, especially when interviewing them. She also uses it to, again, deflect from not having to answer questions she doesn't want to get into. And you and I know nothing about that. So some comedians say that real comedy is pain. Do you agree with that? I do believe it. I do. Uh, that is, yes, exactly. And on top of that, the best comedy is then self-deprecating, as far as I'm concerned. And that mm -hmm. is, rather than ever making fun of someone else, of seeing that the commonality, the universality, universality might not be a word, but of seeing the ridiculousness in all of us is a shared experience. I mean, obviously, I like all kinds of jokes, but the best ones are the ones that make you cry just as much as laugh. Mm -hmm. that, that hit closest to home, right? Exactly. So do you write your own material? Uh, I do. Mostly I do a lot of, <laughs> as far as the books, totally. <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, no, as far as I do a lot of improv comedy, so I, I perform with a lot of other people. In fact, I still, on a regular basis, perform every Friday in Hollywood. If you're in Hollywood, yeah. come to the show. Friday's we'll be all week, folks. Yeah. <laughs> so I really enjoy that collaborative effort, uh, creating something on the fly. I'm not huge on, say, stand-up, uh, nothing against it. It's definitely an art form, but it's an art form that I like to stick and move, and I'm much more happy kind of winging it with friends. Yeah. So where, what makes you feel, or where do you feel most vulnerable? Writing comedy or performing comedy or writing? Books. I was going to yeah. say speaking in front of people. Well, you're good at that. And I know you, so I know you're good at that. <laughs> well, Down deep, because I'm delving deep into your psyche. Ah, finally. Yeah. finally. Which is, yeah. Which is more revealing and which do you feel more vulnerable doing? Putting your humor writing out there or putting your novel writing out there? I think novel writing because after a year, at least for people who know me, because I think traditionally people who know me wouldn't expect something dark to come out of me. Mm -hmm. I, I'm a pretty positive guy. I wake up smiling most days um, despite all things, but, but I have my own darkness, of course, as we all do. My efforts in writing, I'm able to play against type. I suppose that in Hollywood, I never would be able to. I don't get to play the dark, the bad guy in, in a thriller. I play the the funny sidekick in a, <laughs> in, a, in a sitcom, the lovable dad or something like that. So writing allows me to get to the darker parts of life. The Gemini, the other side. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So when you are writing, do you have difficulty I mean, do you default to, I mean, I write humorous thrillers, so I have a hard time pulling back. You know, so when I write a scene, I am writing it and the funny stuff just comes 
flying out of me. And I, I write the scene and then I'm like, oh my God, I'm not writing for I Love Lucy. I'm, you know, trying to. Right. So how do you, is that easy for you? Do you that's struggle good, to balance that or no? Uh, that's a great question. And I think what it is, is I realize that for my crime writing, I have a certain tone and I, I almost think of it in percentages. Like you said, like an I Love Lucy would be a 100% comedy and like an Elmore Leonard, like a Get Shorty or something, right. it'd be 50% comedy, even though it involves some pretty dark stuff. I would think my comedy percentage might be at like 20 when I start this project. Now I have a, and in this particular series, I feel like it, I use comedy to break tension or to release tension. So I sort of feel it in my own, like when I need something <laughs> to either be enjoyable because it's an info dump Right. or I, I need it to be enjoyable because it was a really stressful scene, I'm going to use comedy every time to give you that break, to give the reader that break. Um, so, yeah, I'm about a 20%. <laughs> but I think okay. I set that going into a project. And with the tone of Caitlin's voice and her actions, I do strive to keep that in mind throughout. Right. So do you hear her voice in your head? Because one of the things that struck me was your dialogue. You know, it's so realistic and it feels very real and authentic. Has the acting helped you, do you think? Do you listen to that? Oh, thank you very much, first of all. And second of all, uh, yes. So one of the things that, uh, you know, of course, one of the notes I got with the first draft of this or even the previous manuscript was like, hey, all the characters sound the same. So one thing I've sort of done in the editing process is once I get a draft done, I will go through and sort of read it like an actor breaking down a script. And I'll sort of look at each character and like, well, how would you make this one different? Like if you had to characterize this person. So then all of a sudden, like I have a character uh, who's a, a police officer in Bloomington, uh, who's like a middle-aged Midwestern man. So being one of those and, or at least knowing a million of them, uh, or maybe not a million, but definitely growing up around that, I, I know where to to drop to add a couple contractions, drop a couple articles and pronouns. And so that becomes Jerry Greenwood and similar. So yeah, I kind of break it down like I would a script. I sort of, and then also that helps with rewriting as far as importance of characters. I've sort of started to look at the size of each character and the role in the story as how they might be cast in a movie or a TV show, meaning are they are they a lead? Are they a guest star, a co-star, or five lines and less? In which case, you don't have to spend a lot of time with the waiter if he's a five lines or less. You just have to say waiter and maybe give him a hairstyle. But you know, your secondary characters, yes. to, again, to your credit, very fully drawn as well. Thank you, Mary. Mary and Greenwood and Roman and all those people. I'm a big fan of uh, Scott Canton. For those who have not read the book, Scott Canton is a retired or a poetry professor who has a, a very full life and he's a combination of several people I've known in my life but I love writing for him and yeah a lot of it is these even people. in the hospital he comes up with a few gems so um, exactly somebody, okay. somebody who's clever Mike Roman on the other hand he's very much a hard-boiled noir voice but he's still a man of few words he's not Caitlin's the wordsmith Mike is not but he can make a couple he can crack a couple jokes mm -hmm. They're all, they're all shades of me, and then they're all shades of other people I've known uh, and been lucky enough to know. So. And her, her female friends' interactions. 
How did, I mean, what was your strategy and what does that tell us about Caitlin, her interactions with other women? Yeah, I mean, in general, <laughs> well, she begrudgingly loves, there are parts of herself she wished she could change and she sees in other women in the story. Her best uh -huh. friend, Mary, has not been her best friend for 20 years, but of course they fall back into a rhythm. Uh, and I have a lot of friends like that, a lot of friends who inspire to remind you who you used to be not that you may have changed in a way but like oh yeah i remember why i was this way and to fall into those cadences again it's, it's fun for me to build those secondary characters as again somebody an actor would like love to get that role to be like oh you really carved out a spot for yourself in this movie even though it wasn't your movie to carry that's the kind of secondary characters i like to build uh, because again it can't all just be caitlin i'm as much as I like to solve a mystery and have the thriller and the people opposing each other, uh, I like to hang out with these people. And obviously as a writer, as you know, you're hanging out with these people for a year or two at a time, if not more, especially with first drafts. So you got to think of them as your friends, or at least I do. Oh. And so what are you proudest of um, in this book? When, when uh, you go through it and look back and you read it and people talk to you and everything. I mean, this is a, it consumed such a huge portion of your life and you know you put yourself out there what are you proudest of you know you say you put yourself out there and I think that is probably what I'm proudest of as far as a journey in my life I mean there are definitely sentences I love and, you know chapters <laughs> and sequences sequences yeah. where I'm like oh that is clever and let me get the book and I'll read them to you right now yeah I mean you strive exactly you strive to to do something you've never read before or seen before so that's always fun when you when you find some stuff that surprises people when you, or when you turn a cliche into something else, but mostly for the effort. As far as my background in Hollywood as a writer and an actor, I feel like I was always sort of 80%ing my life. That is, I would do as much as I needed to, but I wasn't burning to finish something. I wasn't sure. And then when I discovered novel length fiction or when I eased into it or changed into it, however, I realized it was the one thing I was going to pursue no matter what. And I was going to write these stories to completion, whether they sold or not. And I know that if I sit at the keyboard, another one will come. And so I think I'm the most proud at seeing it through, not giving up after rejections, of understanding that it can be a long game, especially compared to maybe Hollywood and, and things like that, uh, and other jobs. But understanding that two years of working on a book is nothing. <laughs> too many authors and that you get better over time. Uh, that's really a lovely thing. My first manuscript probably took five years. My second, the one that sold and which is Come and Get Me took probably two. And this latest, the follow-up to Come and Get Me probably only took five months after an outline. Wow. <laughs> and I hope it's all right. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it would be great yeah, judging from book one. Okay, so I have one final deep question. How did you get into acting and how did you get into the arts and put yourself in a position where you come out of yourself? Or do you see it that way? Or are you the person who goes out there and has the shield? Tell us. Lie on the couch and tell us the answer to that. Yes, well, I definitely grew up in a very creative family and a very enabling family. Enabling in a good way, not in a bad way. And I know how lucky I am to have had this, but my parents, my mom had a voice major in college, but she also, she's a teacher. And my father was in a couple rock bands. And so 
my brother and I were always encouraged to do lots of stuff. We played sports. Uh, we played instruments. We both play a couple instruments. My brother went on and got a scholarship for that. And, and my mom had also done a lot of plays and some acting. So we were very much encouraged to take chances in new comfortable situations. And I realized I was pretty goofy, you know, my teens and now, but I, I, and goofy was kind of my thing. That is, I wasn't going to be a quarterback and I certainly wasn't going to, um, I was good at school, but I wasn't going to get a scholarship in math. There, there was no science in my future. So I sort of embraced that side of me that can, I don't know, read a room and make people smile, I suppose. And so I put myself in Los Angeles after college because I knew I was either going to move to Chicago or LA and I actually ended up with a job out here. So I sort of fell into it. Uh, and then, and then again, yeah, I tried a couple different things. It's amazing. I hope everyone gets to experience this thing when they sort of find a place where they can sit and feel very comfortable in their life. And then right, before, you move, before you move on, what was your worst job? The one that you hated the most. I liked all of my jobs, Maddie. I swear. Oh, everybody's listening right now. Yours, so. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, I worked at restaurants and a cut lawns all through high school and college. I worked at restaurants. Loved it. I love those. Honestly, I worked construction and I love that. And I, I worked in TV post-production out here and I love that. The only times I've hated my job have been when I've been unhappy in my life. And then it just becomes a reflection of my, of my life, but at work, the helplessness. So the only, the current job I still work, I love now, but five years ago when I was going through a divorce, I did not care for that job. It wasn't until I got through to the other side where I'm like, oh, it was never the job in the first place. So I don't know, besides that. Yes, Norm, how do you survive in LA being so positive? <laughs> being so positive? Yes. That's, that's the only way you survive in LA, <laughs> being positive. Yeah, you're like a unicorn here. <laughs> Thank you. I, well, again, I surround myself with creative people. One of the things I found when going through a major life change, uh, like a divorce, was how much in my youth I loved being around artists. And so in my transition phase between separated and divorced, I took a contract that I had turned down years ago to work and perform comedy on a cruise ship. And I did that for like a six-month contract. And the shows were fun, and of course, that was yeah. exciting. But also, it was that kind of thing where, like, at night, I would go watch the dance company, the Soleil type people, or the comedians, or, or the magicians. I would just constantly surround myself with performers. As I do back here in Hollywood, I still, again, I don't do as much comedy as I used to, but I still am around a lot of optimistic people who are out there following dreams. Whether, and again, and writers as well. I, as you know, because I've met you, Writers of fiction tend to be, I mean, you know, dark people, but still wonderful people. Um, you know, they're very giving, giving with their time, giving with their energy, and keeping in touch with all those people is, keeps me positive. Yeah, well, you know, I find that, and I found this at Thriller Fest and VoucherCon and all the big uh, conferences that I went to, is that the people who write the darkest stuff, hmm. the funniest stuff, are the funniest people. I mean, they are brutally funny. Right. I mean, Karen Slaughter is hilarious. Yes. Yeah, in a really scary way. So I see that. So, okay. So you're busy now. You're writing. Mm -hmm. um, you're still performing, right? Sure. 
So what's next for you? Well, contractually, my second Caitlin Bergman book uh, is uh -huh. into the editor and should be released in September of 2020. So in the meantime, I will work on a, a third Caitlin book as well as possible spin-offs or some uh, standalones. I've got a couple ideas I'm uh, sort of fleshing out. And on also my wife and I uh, are expecting our first child at the end of March. So Yay, congratulations. Thank you very much. And so life will change in a huge way that we <laughs> are not ready to uh, deal with. Your life will be one big comedy show. That is the hope. Oh. That, no, that is the hope and expectation. 24 hours a day. Exactly. <laughs> At least two hours of sleep. That's all I need. Two to three hours of sleep a day. That ought to do it. <sighs> we'll see. That's the most exciting thing ever. And I, I noticed on Facebook that you put on a an ad for Second City. Is that just, are you still involved with them? Or? Oh, yeah. So the show I do on Fridays is uh, Second City Hollywood every Friday. Uh -huh. 9.30. Yeah, you can go to Second City's website, click on the Hollywood part, and you'll find uh, the show I do, which is Opening Night, the improvised musical, which is like the name implies, we make up a musical, and we've been doing that show for about 20 years. And some of the cast members have been with it the whole time, myself included. So it is a, a bit of family at this point, and it is a long-running L.A. tradition. So, Well, we writers and readers here in Southern California need to rent a bus and <laughs> go in there and do that one night, because that sounds like fun. That, in fact, there's a subway stop uh, about a block away. It's almost right across from Moose and Frank's. Plenty of plenty of good stuff to do. Plenty of good stuff to do. Okay. So um, how can people find out about you, Norm, and your books and your appearances? Oh, Maddie, I'm so um, glad you asked. First of all, there's my website. My website, augustnorman.com, is where you can sign up for my mailing list. I don't inundate people with a bunch of garbage with my mailing list. Probably hit it once a month. And it's usually I include a giveaway for either one of my books or wonderful books that I've read recently or have friends who are doing giveaways. So there's that. You can find me on Facebook at August Norman Author or Instagram at August Norman Author. And I mean, I'm on Twitter, but don't go there. I don't. <laughs> you can go there. I don't. I, I just say it. I, I don't care for Twitter. And actually, that's what my pinned tweet at the top of Twitter says. I, I'll never care for Twitter. So you are not a twit. Right. Okay. There you go. Not at this time. Not at this right. time. Okay. But yeah, well, um, you can find me in any of those spots and I'm always down to chat. All right. Well, um, thank you, August Norman, for bearing your soul. <laughs> thanks, for, <laughs> thanks for really d digging in there, Patty. Yeah. And no yes. problem. Anytime call me. Yes, of course. Yeah. So, readers craving a taut, twisty thriller with a smart female protagonist can buy Come and Get Me Where? You can buy it at most independent bookstore. Any bookstore can order it. I'll say that. Many bookstores have it in stock, not all of them, but like in most major cities, half of the Barnes and Noble will have a copy. Mm -hmm. So it's really just a matter of either checking their website or checking with them. All independent bookstores, which I love, can order it if they don't have it in stock. And of course, you can buy it at Amazon. <laughs> uh, it exists in hardcover, uh, ebook, and audiobook right now. I, it's it's a, hardcover is beautiful. I'm looking at the amazing cover right now as we speak. Good job on that. Oh, well, I just mostly... Did you draw that? Because that's a really amazing. I am not going to ever take credit for anything <laughs> that I do, either with handwriting or with drawing. So I can definitely say that is not my strength. But All I right. really liked what they did. Right. Yeah, you can... Uh, the, I believe it'll be up on Audible. The audiobook will be on Audible within the next week. I believe. 
Oh, good. Of today's recording, which is September 25th, 2019. All right. When, when it is, let me know. Of course. Okay. Norm's social media and book links will be posted in the show notes. Anyone who's interested in my writing appearances or Lit Up OC, the literary salon I host in Orange County, California, can find that info in the notes as well. So, um, especially. is a wonderful night of writing. Oh, you are one of our favorites. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, special and huge thanks to our listeners. I'm Maddie Margarita, and this is Character Flaws on Authors on the Air Global Radio Network.